and now you can open your Bible up to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, if you want to stand with me, we'll read this uh, together. And I'm just going to go ahead and plow through and read all 16 verses here. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who've served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Lord, we believe this is your word for us today. Shape us into the people that could be leaders of your body and that could represent you well to this world for the gospel's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. I read of a recent pastoral search report in which the committee said, we do not have a happy report to give. We've not been able to find a suitable candidate for this church. Though we have one promising prospect still, we do appreciate all the suggestions from the church members. And we followed up each one with interviews or calling with at least three references. The following is our confidential report on the present candidates. Candidate Adam, good man, but problems with his wife. Also, one reference told of how his wife and he enjoyed walking nude in the woods. (laughs) Noah, (laughs) now you're getting it. Former pastorate of 120 years with no converts, prone to unrealistic building projects. Abraham. Though the references reported wife-swapping, the facts seem to show he never slept with another man's wife, 
but did offer to share his own wife with another man. Joseph, a big thinker, but a bragger, believes in dream interpreting and has a prison record. Moses, a modest and meek man, but poor communicator, even stuttering at times, sometimes blows his stack and acts rashly. Some say he left an earlier church over a murder charge. David, the most promising leader of all until we discovered the affair he had with his neighbor's wife. Solomon, great preacher, but our parsonage would never hold all those wives. Elijah, prone to depression, collapsing under pressure. Elisha, reported to have lived with a single widow while at his former church. Hosea, a tender and loving pastor, but our people could never handle his wife's occupation. This is where you got to start reading the Old Testament to know who these guys even are. Deborah, female. Jeremiah, emotionally unstable, alarmist, negative, always lamenting things, and reported to have taken a long trip to bury his underwear in the bank of a foreign river. (laughs) That guy's out. Isaiah, on the fringe, claims to have seen angels in church, has trouble with his language. Jonah refused God's call into ministry until he was forced to obey by getting swallowed up by a great fish. He told us the fish later spit him out on the shore near here. We hung up. (laughs) Amos, too backward and unpolished, with some seminary training you might have promised, but has a hang-up against wealthy people, might fit in better in a poor congregation. He was a shepherd. John says he's a Baptist, but definitely doesn't dress like one. Has slept in the outdoors for months on end, has a weird diet, and provokes denominational leaders. Peter, too blue-collar, has a bad temper, even has been known to curse, has a big running with, uh, had a big run-in with Paul in Antioch, aggressive, and a loose cannon. Paul, powerful CEO-type leader and fascinating preacher, however, short on tact, unforgiving with younger ministers, Harsh and has been known to preach all night. I like that guy. (laughs) Timothy, just too young. Jesus has had popular times, but once when his church grew to uh, 5,000, he managed to offend them all and his church dwindled down to 12 people. Seldom stays in one place very long, long. And of course, he's single. And finally, Judas. His references are solid, a steady plotter, conservative, good connections, knows how to handle money, we're inviting him to preach this Sunday. This Sunday, Possibilities here. <laughs> and so as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see the qualifications for church leaders, for pastors, for deacons. Church leadership can attract people with mixed and sometimes just down and outright sinful motives. Within spiritual leadership, there seems to be prestige, and that can attract people. There can be a lure of power that can draw others. You know, to be able to spiritually direct people's lives can be heady stuff. Having access to the mysterious inner workings of the church. Man, I want to be a part of that. But Christian ministry and leadership within the church It's really a matter of character. It's here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we see that the leaders of the church are to be men of character and of function. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, we have the key verse of the book where Paul says, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so Paul's giving us, and it's in the same chapter, you know, the conduct for church leaders, for the pastors and for uh, the deacons. First Timothy is about church order and church conduct, but there's also a deeper purpose of First Timothy. And we see it uh, in the latter part of chapter 1, going into chapter 2, where we read that God is the God of salvation, who desires that all men be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And from that point on, in chapter 2, it goes on to say, for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So what that set of verses in chapter 2, around verse 4 through 6, tells us is that uh, the purpose of 1 Timothy and the things that come after chapter 2, verse 4, whether it's about the dress of women in the church, the conduct of women in the church, uh, the qualifications for elders, for deacons, and so on and so forth, it all flows from a God of salvation who desires the globe to know the gospel, that the gospel would be testified in due time. And so that really helps us as a mission-minded New Testament church. We don't want to just get bogged down on qualifications for leaders thinking that that's the end of today's study and I'm never going to be a pastor. I'm just, so what's it got to do with me? It all has to do with the missionary heart of God that men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's really the context of what we're getting in here. As R. Kent Hughes, written with Brian Chappell, right? All of this has to do with gospel and mission because if the church is what it ought to be, it will pursue God's desire for all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So let's get into this having that mission-minded perspective and having a conduct within the church perspective in mind. This is a faithful saying, verse 1, or a trustworthy saying, really a gospel truth. Before the writings of the New Testament, there were these faithful sayings passed down uh, from the church leaders. So this is a good saying. It's a gospel truth. If a man desires, and so uh, if you weren't here two weeks ago, you can look at uh, the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, and look at the teaching about the role of women in the church, which we believe is not to be pastors or teachers uh, over men, um, but to be learners. And there's a lot there. If this is your first Sunday here, don't jump in a fence. Please do myself and yourself a favor. Get online, listen to the teaching, look at the context, see the wonderful heart of God towards women. It's wonderful, it's freeing. There's so many awesome ways for women to serve and to be used in the church, to have a wonderful place and role in our lives. Uh, and yet, in God's order and in his economy, it's just not that you would be a pastor or an overseer of a congregation. And so that's why Paul immediately goes into, if it's a, it's a man who would desire this position of a bishop. The word desire will be used two times here, um, but it's, it's two different desires. The first desire is if you desire a position of the bishop, it means you've set your heart on it. You know, maybe that's you. you, you you've set your heart on being a pastor. You've set your, your heart on being a, a, an overseer of a church. There's just something in you that you just say, man, I, I feel like the Lord's calling me to do that at some time. 
And, and that's not a bad thing to have a desire as the word bishop here, which really speaks of an office of being a church leader. And that's what we're talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're talking about um, offices of leadership within the church. And here the word is used that's bishop. It's not a word we use very often. We don't pick as we're dialoguing in core groups and 242 groups. We don't call Rory Bishop Rory or, or Blaine Bishop Blaine or J- Jeremy is Maybe he is elder. No, maybe Blaine's the elder. He's definitely the elder one. Maybe we are more bishops. And, and uh, maybe pawns. I don't know if we're talking chess. But, but uh, we'll just say Blaine rules the roost in our elders' meetings. But I tease. But, uh, but bishop, it, it's speaking of the office of a church leader. And so when you read the New Testament, uh, you see words like bishop, overseer, elder, shepherd, and pastor. Okay, and those five words are all used interchangeably to really just describe a pastor, okay, or to describe um, uh, an elder. And so in our church, we just more use the terms commonly pastor and elder. Uh, You know, shepherd tends to describe more of the function, so does overseer. Uh, But those words are used interchangeably. So as we look at bishop here, we're thinking elder, okay, we're thinking pastor, Um, And as we look at this today, whether we're talking um, pastor or deacon, it's important to remember we're talking about areas of service, not areas of status, okay? And automatically, when we come into teachings like this, we automatically, it's almost our sinful nature that we begin to think, oh, you know, pastor, that's status, you know, that's the guy that's just just rules and he's just a guy that's just famous he's a guy everyone's eyes are on and so one day oh man maybe someday i'll be a deacon and that's kind of down here and then one day i'll get to be pastor and that's up here that is unbiblical we never teach it that way in the church when we are talking about roles like offices in the church we're talking about being servants that's how jesus was that's what the new testament teaches we're talking about service not status and so if you kind of mull on this and you mull on the teaching of women in leadership and you're just mulling about it and you're getting angry and bitter, I am guarantee that there's some level in your heart there where you're still thinking status. It's not status. Service. Laying our life down for the flock. And that's just the role. It's the way God has designed it. And so bishop, overseer, elder, shepherd, pastor, are all words used interchangeably. We're going to look at a few different New Testament passages where we see this as the case. Look in 1 Peter chapter 5, a big just verse for me. I remember being a high schooler reading this and handwriting this verse out for my pastor, Ken Odegaard at Calvary Chapel in Lakeview. And just remember he had it, my handwritten scripture uh, in front of his desk uh, through my high school career, if you want to call it that. But Peter says, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So uh, we've got the word elder being used already in this section. And then in verse two, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. So elders are to shepherd the flock of God. What do shepherds do? They feed the flock. They tend the flock. They protect the flock. They cull the herd. All sorts of things like that representing the, the, the function 
within uh, an elder's life there, over uh, shepherding the flock of God which is among you. And then Peter says, serving as overseers. Okay, so it's oversight as an elder, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And so we're going to get into qualifications of a pastor or an elder. It's told us in 1 Timothy, but really not greedy for money, not about dishonest gain, not doing it because we have to, doing it because we get to. Not doing it with a rulership, with a a scepter that we use as a rod of iron to beat down the church of God, but rather coming from underneath and serving and lifting up the people with a Jesus style of leadership, which is service to the point of death, laying our lives down for the people. And then we see uh, verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that was, does not fade away. So we believe we are under shepherds of the church and that there is a chief shepherd the senior pastor of the church is jesus christ who's gonna uh he's gonna appear and blessing is he's gonna reward those who are faithful pastors elders overseers shepherds in acts chapter 20 verse 17 paul goes and sends to ephesus and calls for the elders of the church and so we see that a new testament church has elders and that's plural Uh, We see in Titus, Titus is told by Paul, set up the things that are lacking in a church and appoint elders. And so if there's not multiple elders in a church, a church is lacking. And so Paul calls to Ephesus, calls for the elders of the church, and then he speaks to them when they come to him. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28, he speaks to the elders. He said, take heed to yourselves and to the whole flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So we're talking two elders. They are to take care of the flock. They are overseers. They are shepherds. So are you beginning to see how just those words are used interchangeably for the same role? And he goes on to say, For know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, So there's a shepherdish type role going on there. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So Paul gives us a little bit of his elder shepherding heart. He was up. He was up late. He was weeping and mourning and just laying his life down, begging people to be followers of the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 11, uh, we have a bit of the role of a pastor. Uh, we see some of the uh, New Testament offices. Uh, some were apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. We see pastors and teachers were given for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so the role of a pastor teacher is to equip y'all for the work of the ministry. The role of a pastor is not to do all of the work of the ministry, but to train up the saints so that we are all ministers. We all have a part to play. And later on, it's going to say in Ephesians chapter 4, everyone does his share. Everyone has a share and a part to play in the church. And it's a pastor's role to equip those saints 
for that work of the ministry. So, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he's got his heart set on being a pastor, being an elder in the church, being an overseer, tending the flock, you're desiring a good thing. And so here's the word desire again. It's a different word. It's kind of interesting. It takes study to figure that out. Like, I wonder what the definition for this desire is. And you type it in your search bar, and it comes up. All right, this is the fun of being a pastor. Aren't you all excited? Who wants to, who wants to sign up? Okay, uh, you get to look up definitions. Okay. But it's important because the first desire, if a man has his heart set on being a pastor, then he does something else. He desires, in a different way, a good work. Okay, now this desire, the second work, is origami in the Greek. So if you've ever done origami, boom, right away you're qualified to be a pastor. That's all, that's all it takes, really. That's all, that's all it, I've never done it. I've had no interest. But it is origami in the Greek. You'll never forget that. I guarantee it. And it means to stretch oneself out, to stretch oneself out, to aspire to. It even goes so far to mean to desire greatly and to even lust after, but not in a bad sense. So if a man sets his heart on being a pastor, he is just kind of that earnestly coveting, almost like that husband-like jealousy just desiring deeply, origami, a great work. It's a great work that you're just longing for. It's a fitting, beautiful work. And the word means it's a beautiful thing that you're longing for. It's a beautiful task. And you know what? It is a work. It is a task. It's labor and it is toil it's work it's a beautiful work though donald guthrie says wherever spiritual values have been rightly assessed there's always been a high estimate of the christian ministry within the church where the gospel's going forth there's been something that that not necessarily within the world, but among those who are spiritual, there's a high esteem of the spiritual work. It was Hughes that said, how beautiful it is when a man sets his heart on the virtues essential to spiritual leadership. It's a beautiful thing to set your heart to that. And as we're going to get into some qualifications, it's a beautiful thing to set your heart on those qualifications. An old poem says, he who would play a leader's part on a noble task has set his heart. It's a good thing. John Wycliffe, who's been called the morning star of the Reformation, said that the highest service that men may attain to on earth is to preach the word of God. John Wesley, a morning star of the Reformation, the highest service that men may attend to on earth is to preach the word of God. You know, as I'm talking, I'm just thinking about my story. And I mean, I don't think there was ever really like this. I just want to be a pastor someday. I just, oh, that's just what I want to do. If I, I mean, growing up on the, on the ranch, just Jesus just sought me and bought me. And just, I just love Jesus for what he'd done. And I just couldn't help but tell 
hired men as they were coming and fueling tractors up. I stood by the fuel tank and I just tell them about Jesus. And they tell my dad, like, what's up with your kid? He's always talking about Jesus. And, and as I grew up, I'd be singing real loud in church. And someone spoke over me, Rory, one day you're going to be a singing, preaching cowboy. And I've got a little bit singing down. Maybe my preaching's okay. There's people on this side of the room that would say the cowboy part, so-so. I think I got four calves yesterday at the branding. One had two heels, two had one heel, and one was, I don't know, there was almost a blow-up. But but two of those prophecies have come true so far. But there was never for me like, oh man, I just want to be a pastor. I just want to be up on stage. And, And as I grew, and just really the Lord in a personal way was getting a hold of my heart, I just remember loving my pastor not wanting to be my pastor but loving my pastor and and because i loved him i hung out with him i was with him all the time after school at every discipleship group i could be a part of i was at every prayer meeting men's breakfast sunday morning wednesday night whatever it was even in high school i got to have a work um like an excuse from school to go out on like a work experience and for three years i would go and just sit At that period of high school, I would go and I would sit with my pastor. We'd talk of spiritual things. I'd clean the church. I'd polish the metal. It was shiny on those parts of the, and I'd get all the fingerprints off. I'd clean the bathrooms and I'd just sit. And I was like a little Samuel, you know, who would just serve in the church. Not even like, I've got to be a pastor someday. I just loved being in the house of the Lord and being with those spiritual men who are my leaders. I remember meeting Rob Verdine, you know, and, and he was sitting out in a lawn chair out in his yard. It was hot. He didn't have air conditioning. He was just like, that's Rob. And it's just like, man, I just value that man in my life and just being with him. But just, it was never like, I just want to be a pastor. But for me in my testimony, it was just by being with those men. And, you know, I, I was like, I want to be a veterinarian. I want to be a rancher. I want to preach the gospel. That was more my like set my heart on. And it's just like the Lord just more went and it just, he just put me in the ministry. But that might not be your testimony, especially some of you here today that, you know, you've kind of gone that track of, like, those years are kind of done, and here you are, and it's good to just be in a place where Paul's telling Timothy, hey, if anyone in the church wants to be a pastor, that's a good thing. You desire a good work. In fact, that type of service is the highest service that men may attain on earth. You get to preach the words of God. Not every job does that. I remember this today I was sitting at my desk and I don't know, early morning and getting my sermon wrapped up and I remembered a book sitting on my shelf there. It was called uh, Between Two Worlds, The Art of Preaching in the 20th Century. It was by John Stott. Probably read that book five years ago, but there's this one paragraph that stuck in my mind. And so I grabbed the book and I flip flip and I've got stars and underlines. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. Boom. This is it. And listen to this paragraph from John Stott. He speaks of Cotton Matthew, who was an American Puritan, a fellow of Harvard, a scholarly theologian and a prolific writer. And he provided in his book called Student and Preacher, what he termed were the directions for the candidate candidate of the ministry. Cotton Matthews' view of the Christian minister in, uh, in general and of the preacher in particular was extremely exalted. His preface of his book says this, the office of the Christian ministry, rightly understood, is the most honorable and important 
that any man in the whole world can ever sustain. And it will be one of the wonders and employments of eternity to consider the reasons why the wisdom and goodness of God assigned this office to imperfect and guilty man. The great deign and intention of the office of a Christian preacher are to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. To display in the most lively colors and proclaim in the clearest language the wonderful perfections, offices, and grace of the Son of God. And to attract the souls of men into a state of everlasting friendship with him. It is a work which an angel might wish for. As an honor to his character. Yea, an office which every angel in heaven might covet to be employed in for a thousand years to come. It is such an honorable, important, and useful office that if a man be put into it by God and made faithful and successful through life, he may look down with disdain upon a crown and shed a tear of pity on the brightest monarch on earth. Now, of course, it's easy for me to quote that because I get to be a preacher as a career, right? But you know what the wonderful thing is, is in a way we all get to partake in that ministry. We all get to be preachers of the gospel. We all get to have the ministry of reconciliation. And yet, in God's omniscience and omnipotence and sovereignty, he has said that I am going to nearly risk my glory as the chief shepherd by raising up imperfect men as my under shepherds to help care for my people that I have purchased and bought with my own blood. And for those men who sense the burden on their heart as a calling to be a pastor, elder, overseer of a church, man, angels wish that they would have that role. What a role. And so as we are in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm telling you, this is, I, I have been excited to teach 1 Timothy and excited to get to this section because I'm excited for the call of God on many of your lives. Even for the women who, here who may not be elders or deacons and have that privilege, but are still called to be ministers, that the Lord would raise up ministers. And I'm especially excited as we are a sending church that wants to raise up and send out and raise up and send out. And we have Jeremy and Delina who've been raised up and now they're being sent out. And we have Jason and Kayla who've been raised up and now they're being sent out. And Katie raised up and sent out. These are school of ministry. I think Jeremy and Delina would say we got saved in this church. Raised up, sent out, discipled, sent out. And so now we just like, okay, Lord, who's next? Is it, is it a wonder that we'd be raising up and sending out and we would now have an empty chair at our table as elders? So maybe the Lord would just say, man, you know what? I, I think the Lord is putting a desire for that in me. And you know what? You desire a good thing, a beautiful task. 
And so my hope is and my prayer is that as we go through this study, that just the Lord would put callings on hearts of, of men here to be leaders, that you would observe these qualities that we're going to be looking and that the Lord would put his finger on some and say, son, you've got some work to grow in in these areas. But I do have this call on your life. So let's start disciplines. Let's start things in our life that we can start moving this way and be a man of character and qualifications so that you can be a man of gifting and function. Hughes says, at the same time, an overweening desire for position is reason for automatic disqualification. Such ambition indicates that a man does not understand either the job or what will be required personally and professionally. So to have kind of that over, like, all I want is to be a pastor, all I want is to be a deacon, that's an unhealthy place. I just challenge you, after today's message, just go look in Jeremy's eyes. Look in his eyes. Why don't you look into his wife's eyes? Look in Blaine's eyes. That guy's gone 50 shades of gray since he's been an elder here. <laughs> I told the pastors at the, at the Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference uh, this week in, in Central Oregon Pastors. I was like, I'm getting old. This is making me old. This is making me old. You know, there's little wrinkles that are, I, man, I, I feel like I'm 27 still, but it's like there's things happening to me. It's a task. It's a task, but it's a good task. And so we have 16 qualifications for pastors or for elders here that we're going to try to get through today. And it, by the looks of the clock, I have 45 minutes. <laughs> Jeremy, I saw that look. It's <laughs> like, I might as well get this out of my tooth right now. <laughs> No, we won't. We'll, we'll, we'll stop at the end of elders. We'll talk about deacons and the rest of the chapter at a later date. But 16 qualifications for pastors, elders. I'm telling you guys, I've been memorizing 1 Timothy, and, uh, and I'm in this section, and I went through the qualifications probably four times going, one, two, three, four, five, bloop, 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 bloop. Oh, I probably messed up. One, two, three, four, five, bloop, bloop, bloop. I, I probably messed up again. Bloop, 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 bloop. 16 qualifications. I'm listening to Alistair Begg. He says, there's 15 qualifications for elders here. And I'm like, ah! I don't know why that is. It's either 15 or 16. You do the math, okay? Not that big of a deal. Chill out, okay? Uh, but here we have, again, Hughes says, it's a sober fact that as goes the leadership, so goes the church. Sobering fact that as goes the leadership, so goes the church. With some common sense qualifications, it's an axiom that we are as leaders a microcosm. The congregation will become the microcosm as the years go by. Donald Guthrie said, in Greek circles, parallel lists were current rent for various occupations, such as kings and generals and, of course, midwives. You're going to be a midwife. This was a similar list. It's something that would be a qualification for you. These aren't exhaustive, but they do represent the bare minimum for elders if they're to grace the church and the world. And we'll notice here that there's a greater emphasis placed upon the character of the man than the gifting of the man. Of these characteristics, only one has to do with gifting. Able to teach. All of the rest have to do with godly living. So this is a great statement to us. 
And I'll tell you, as I've been memorizing it, as I've been studying it, these verses are a tough mirror that I've been called to look into, that we are called to look into. These are verses that the temptation would be to say that Christian leaders must be perfect then. That's not what we get by reading this. They're not to be perfect, nor are they to pretend to be perfect But we are called to a peculiar responsibility in regard to these things. And how often when one pastor falls, many people fall with them. Just as when a big mighty oak falls in a forest, it takes down many little trees as it crashes. To quote Alistair Begg, John Thornton was a prosperous businessman in a congregation of Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was the preacher who was saved when he was preaching his own sermon. It was like the lights went on when he was preaching. And the grace somehow happened that that the lights went on. And someone in the audience saw that the lights went on in the preacher. And he was broken there at the pulpit. And someone in the church shouted out, The parson has just gotten saved. And the whole church just said, Woo! And that began a revival in this Anglican church. A century and a half ago. But this John Thornton deeply cared for Charles Simeon and wrote a letter to him saying, Watch continually over your own soul and spirit and do all in love. We must grow downward in humility to soar heavenward. I should recommend having a watchful eye over yourself. For generally speaking, as is the minister, so are the people. If we want to broaden it, as are the elders, so are the people. Where the ministers are kind, the people will be kind. Where the ministers are hospitable, the people will be hospitable. As the ministers are evangelists, the peoples are evangelists. And it was was Beg that I wanted to quote that said, This is painful. I'd rather pass this off to other preachers to preach because the character that appears here is to be maintained for all of the life of the man in service. And so here are the characters, the qualifications. Verse 2. Boy, all of that just to get through verse 1. We're only going through verse 7 today, so calm your jets. A bishop then must be blameless. Blameless. This refers to observable conduct. This man must be irreproachable or above or without reproach, above criticism, above disapproval or disappointment. It's almost synonymous with the final qualification, which is also about reputation. So it's referring to observable conduct. Again, it doesn't mean this man must be perfect, but it does mean that no one is able to point to an open, flagrant violation that is obviously there, from which he refuses to repent and be removed from, and he believes he can continue on in his own merry way as a church leader. Uh, The late preacher Trapp said every faithful pastor must be such as against whom no just exception can be laid, no gross fault objected. Involuntary failings and unavoidable infirmities have a pardon, of course, both with God and with all good men. So what does it mean to be blameless? What does it mean to be above reproach? 
the rest of the qualifications tell us. He is to be the husband of one wife. It's been said he's a one-woman man. There's something almost Western about that. I don't know, he's a one-woman man. You know, I don't know. That's something special, I suppose. A one-woman man. Or if you read the NIV, I'll pray for you. Just kidding. But it says he's someone who's faithful to his wife. He's faithful to his wife. I recall hearing different pastors say, one woman at a time. That gets a little sketchy, doesn't it? One woman at a time. Or as the NRSV says, married only once. Now, if you'll bear with me, because I'm not smart enough to have these thoughts on my own, I'm going to read from the big boys, okay? And they're going to help us work through one woman at a time? Is that really something we should be like, "Mm," you know? Or a one-woman man? Or like never has been divorced? You know, how do we interpret this? So I'm going to go to a professor of Covenant Theological Seminary, a Christ-centered preacher, a professor, uh, two men writing this, uh, R. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappelle. And they would say the standard here for elders is extraordinarily high, but not in the way that is so often misinterpreted. The common misinterpretation is quantitative. Okay? So when we start getting mixed up on like the numbers of like, you know, that that's not exactly the interpretation direction we should go with this. In other words, that he could have only one. Uh, that he can have had only one wife, thus if he had been divorced or widowed and remarried, that he could not be an elder. The correct sense here is not quantitative, but qualitative. The man is truly a one-woman man. I think he's getting into there that, you know, sometimes in our quantitative we could say well i've never been divorced i've always had the same wife but i've had many different flings and affairs and such and so we want to look at qualitative as well this is a truly one woman man there are no other women in his life he is totally faithful he does not flirt there are no dalliances and if you're like me you have to go look that up and that means casual romantic relationships As George Knight says, he is a man who, having contracted a monogamous marriage, is faithful to his wedding vows. As the New Living Translation has it, he must be faithful to his wife. And so the bar is set high, and no cleverness or ancient or postmodern verbal sleight of hand can get around it. He's faithful to his wife. That's what it means to be blameless. He's temperate, which means he's restrained and sober. He's circumspect, which means he's vigilant. He's looking around. He's aware. And that means he's wary. He's unwilling to take risks. He's temperate. And as I was memorizing, so my, my, my system for memorizing is say the verse five times. Read it. Then write it out from memory. 
then say it from memory, then move on to the next verse. Do that with the next verse, then say the previous verse and the next verse from memory, then do it with the next verse. So it can be, you know, it takes a little time, but it's actually a wonderful joy. And so, but my brain doesn't work all that great. And so as I write it down, I have to draw pictures and, you know, all sorts of things to help me remember certain things. And, and for me to remember that this man must be temperate, I drew the head of a man next to the verse and I put a thermometer on his side of his head. You know, temperate. It's not even what that means, but I wrote, you know, but I drew it. Someone who's vigilant. And the interesting thing is that temperate goes right on to sober-minded. And those words actually kind of mean the same thing. They're synonymous with each other. And sober-minded, this qualification is sophron. And it means that this man is prudent, moderate in opinion and passion, discreet of sound mind, self-controlled, sensible, clear-headed. He's a clear-headed. In this head, there's temperate, sober-mindedness, vigilant, circumspect, clear-headedness. As the Proverbs say, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. It's better to just be someone that the Holy Spirit is obviously upon. You're slow to anger, and you rule your own spirit. What does it mean for a pastor elder to be blameless? He's of good behavior. Of good behavior. I think, how'd it go in my, my, so my pictures were a thermometer and then like a clear head, no no drunkenness or sober-mindedness. And then it went like that. (laughs) Good. Boom. Good behavior. I know it's crazy. Lindsay's like, why do you memorize like that? That's harder than just memorizing the words. Look at me. (laughs) Doesn't even make sense to any of you. Well, you're welcome. Of good behavior. This is someone who's appropriate, modest. It goes back to when we were talking about the dress of women in the church. It's to be with propriety and moderation. Appropriate. Same with the men. Your behavior is to be appropriate. I was convicted at an elders meeting the other day when I made a joke and Casey corrected me. And man, I was just convicted of that. You know, she's just like, hey, you're not just with the guys here anymore. I'm like, oh, that was inappropriate. Casey, I've been convicted for three days about that. <laughs> I'm gonna, yes. Yes, you should be able to expect that. But proper. An elder should be proper. I just remember Grandma Barb coming up to me. I was probably here for three years, and she just comes up to me, and she says, I just love you. just love you. You've got a lot of maturing to do, but I just love you. And that's why I'm not the elder elder. There's still maturing to do. Not perfect, but seeing things in me. And uh, anyways... Hospitable. Hospitable. This means an elder loves loving strangers. He is fond of guests. As the New Testament would say in Romans 12, 13, 
They're distributing to the needs of the saints, and they are given over to hospitality. Or in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, not forgetting to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Just so fast to just bring people into your home and and provide a meal and provide help and assistance and to provide uh, just, you know, uh, the care that they need, that, that, man, just as you look at the Old Testament, you read of, man, uh, just angelic. I remember when I was a little kid, our car broke down on the Willamette Pass, and I, I think it was a flat tire, and our flat was broken, or flat, the flat was flat, no, our spare was flat, <laughs> the brain will start working here at some point. And, you know, car after car drove by, and, you know, we're just kind of like, hey, there's a whole family, broken down, no one's stopping. And then this beautiful new white pickup pulls up and, you know, gets out and, and uh, what's wrong? And just an elderly couple, and, and uh, we're like, well, our flat is flat, and our spare is flat, and we don't know what to do. Because I happen to have an air compressor on my truck. This was back when nobody had air compressors on their truck, and, you know, and we're like, did you know those were angels? white pickup so smiley and an air compressor in their truck and they just entertained us and we're angels okay anyways getting way off there first peter 4 9 be hospitable to one another without grumbling and that's important because a lot of times in our hospitality we kind of this is the third time we've had them over third time we've you know filled up that flat tire we keep driving on the willamette pass they won't get that thing fixed Keep going, honey. Don't look at him. Don't make eye contact as we drive by. Uh, read a story this week as a young man, a missionary, a statesman to be named E. Stanley Jones, experienced the ultimate in hospitality when he was preaching at his first evangelistic service among the poor mountaineers of Kentucky. The meetings were held in a schoolhouse. And Dr. Jones writes, at the schoolhouse, I was invited to stay with a man and his wife. And when I arrived, I saw that there was only one bed. The husband said, you guys take the far side. Nobody? That's normal to you? No one's like, hmm. Okay. You take the far side. Then he got in. Then his wife. And in the morning, we reversed the process. I turned my face to the wall as they dressed. And then they stepped out while I dressed. That was real hospitality. I have slept in palaces, but the hospitality of that one-bed home is the most memorable and the most appreciated. All right, let's get our mind out of the gutter for a second. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. And let's think about how it's also the most beautiful thing we've ever heard. They said, man, we are going to share our home with you. One man said that being hospitable says that He has something of the hospital in him. He has something of the hospital in him. And I was reminded of a story my grandpa told me. He loved to tell me jokes, and and he told me this one, that a preacher went to visit an elderly woman from his church who had just had an operation. As he was sitting there talking with her, he noticed a bowl of peanuts on the stand next to the bed. He began to eat them, and soon it was time for him to leave. When he got up, he noticed he'd eaten all of her peanuts. Sister Jones, he said, I'm sorry, I ate all of your peanuts. And she replied, that's okay, Pastor. I already sucked all the chocolate off of them. (laughs) 
But a pastor shouldn't be seen as the guy that's only up at the pulpit and is never out among the people. He's to be out there loving and caring and tending the flock and being there at the hospital beds, eating the salty peanuts there that are just right there, just up for grabs. No chocolate. He's seeking to show hospitality, which means he's actually pursuing and chasing after something with a strenuous pursuit to care for people. He's able to teach. And here is that one gifted quality of the pastor. He's able to teach in the Greek. It's didacticos, which means skillful in teaching and apt to preaching. Able to preach, able to teach. This demands that the elder be a student of the word, being diligent to show himself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, Paul tells Timothy in the second epistle. And that word, rightly dividing the word, means to plow straight lines in the word of God. An elder is someone who should be able to handle the word of God. And and when someone comes with counseling needs and questions about the word, They're able to help point them to solutions in the scripture. They can defend the faith. Guthrie says the church has been at its weakest when the basic requirement has been absent in his leaders. Not given to wine, verse 3. Not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. I'm going to speed through this because I just looked at my watch. We're way past time. So uh, not given to wine. Uh, I would encourage you, you can get on our sermon player, look up uh, wine, beer, alcohol, something like that. We've done in-depth studies in, uh, in the use of liberties in a Christian's life. And, uh, and so I would just encourage you to listen to that in the in-depth interpretations of Scripture. And simply put, uh, you know, many people's positions are that an elder or a pastor should never drink. They should be teetotalers. They should abstain from wine, beer, alcohol, and the like. And those may be great convictions, and there may be many opportunities where that is actually wisdom. Uh, to have a strict forbidding of such is actually unbiblical. And so we just being people who are grounded in the authority of the word, we don't want to put a yoke on elders and presbyteros, uh, bishops and overseers, that the word doesn't put on them. And so uh, what I would say is that for certain we can say to elders and pastors that you are to never be drunk, that you are to be sensitive to your brothers and sisters' consciences. That means be careful where, when, and what you post on social media. And I would also say that we are to look at Jesus' example and ask, can I be more holy than Jesus where Jesus was the son of man, verse Matthew eleven nineteen, who came eating and drinking so much so they said, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, which is an excessive drinker, a friend of tax collectors, collectors and sinners. I'm not at all saying that Jesus was a drunkard. That's obviously not the case, but he was drinking wine to where people would watch him and they would say, he's over there with those people ministering to those people. He's a, he's a drunkard and a wine-bibber. Or as you look at John chapter 2, he's the Jesus. He's the God-man who turned water into wine. Uh, and as it was tasted, it was made wine. And the word wine means wine in the original languages. It does not mean watered-down grape juice. It doesn't mean anything like that. Studying the word of God, 
wine means wine. And if it was abused, it would cause all kinds of horrific things. Read the Bible. Wine is wine, and if it's abused and misused, horrific things would flow from it, just like the abuse and misuse of many other good things uh, that we have that have been given to us from the Lord. Um, and so it can go automatically from, uh, from someone who is drunk. And by the way, the word peroinos, given over to wine, speaks of addicted to wine, a drunkard. Literally, they should not be lingering beside wine. That moves so often into violence. So an elder is not to be violence, not a bully, not a striker, not violent not greedy for money. He's not drunk for wine, and he's not drunk for money. He's gentle. We'll have the worship team come on up. He's yielding. He's patient. He's appropriate. He's not quarrelsome. He's not always looking for a fight. He's not a brawler. He's not covetous, not loving money. He's not loving filthy lucre. So this is a guy who's temperate. I read of churchgoers in Fjaris, Sweden, who dragged the furious choir director Sven Anaka Frackergnats <laughs> away from the sour-singing Erica Bengston as he whacked her back and legs with his cane. His explanation, I just went wild because she kept singing off-key. She was tone-deaf, and I begged her for years not to sing so loud, so I took my cane to her backside. At church. I actually heard a very similar story from Central Oregon this week. On Easter Sunday, there was a fight in the church over the music. Fight. An elder blew out a church angry on Easter Sunday. And so whether it's that elder or Mr. Fraggernauts, those guys are not elder material, sadly, in looking at their reputation. So gentle chorusum. Uh, they're to have not be new believers, lest they be puffed up with pride. And they're to have a good reputation among those who are on the outside. Lest there would be some horrific outcomes there, as we see in 1 Timothy 3. Thank you.